You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, you're fresh back from Montreal for UFC 158. It seemed like this journey was was fraught with perils for you, not only for you, but some other journalists as well. To start off, I would like to talk to you about the manifestation in oh, the yeah. streets that I read about. Yeah. What, what's up with that? Well, that's what I wondered. Uh, what happened was I got into Montreal Friday evening-ish, um, and I noticed something in the Montreal airport that was like, hey, due to the U.S. budget situation, uh, there, are, there are fewer customs agents on the American side come, getting back out, so plan oh, to get here sooner wow. when you leave. And at the time, I didn't really think that much of it. More on that in a bit. Anyway. That's kind of ghetto, though. Let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, well, I felt like, come on, Canada, you really got to twist the knife on our budget situation? And also, I thought that... I thought that that whole thing just started. I didn't know that uh, they, they jumped right on that in a hurry. But uh, I'm in the cab on the way to uh, my hotel, and the cab driver listened to some French radio station like they do in Montreal. And then he asked me if I speak French, and I'm like, no. And he's like, oh, well, what they just said I'll go ahead and means. Take the long way around. <laughs> means uh, I might not be able to take you to your hotel. And I was like, and then, you know, some awkward moments of silence passed, and then I asked, so why? Won't you be able to take me to my hotel? And he was like, uh, there is, uh, and I was like, construction? And he said, no, uh, in the street, there is a, uh, a manifestation. Uh, and he explained he didn't know the English word, and I was like, parade? And he said, maybe. Uh, he, he didn't know the word for it. Turned out it was a protest that inevitably each year eventually becomes a riot. It's a protest against police brutality, which apparently the police in Montreal have deemed illegal, but happens on the same day every year, and pretty much every year it turns into a total shitstorm in the streets. Calling a riot a manifestation in the streets might be the most Canadian fucking thing I've (laughs) ever heard in my life. I hear manifestation, and it sounds to me like zombies, like... You know, like the fire hydrants are coming to life and wandering after you or something. It's just, they're just so nice. That they, they couldn't refer to it as a riot. They had to call it a manifestation. Yeah. So anyway, you were there. You went to the fights. I did. Uh, and then it seemed like you had some trouble on the way home. Uh, you've got your coffee drink with you this 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 afternoon. Uh, did you get in late? What, what happened? You, well, yeah. I mean, it just took a long time. You know, I got to the airport super early because of the U.S. budget situation. Naturally, <laughs> as as you do whenever your uh, your government is having a situation. Yeah, I thought I was going to be budget there manifestation <laughs> really so really early and breeze through there. And I get there, Kevin Eoli's already ahead of me in line. Uh, Paradigm uh, sports agent Adi Attar is behind me in line, and I realize. This line isn't really going anywhere. So we stood there for a long, long time. And then by the time I actually got to the customs, the, the part where you actually talk to a customs agent, I realized there's only like three of them there on Sunday morning. Uh, and then I got in a plane which sat on the tarmac for a couple hours. Uh, so, you know, good times. Just spend all day getting back from Montreal. It, does, it sounds like a, a hell of a time. As usual this week, the co-main event podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, George St. Pierre's dark side turned out to look a lot like George St. Pierre's normal side. People has no idea how much my dark side resembles my normal side. In round number two, did the saga of America's ambassador to the 209 go from fascinating to just fucking heartbreaking last week? And in round number three, oh man, Carlos Condit is tough as hell. <laughs> It's not bad. Is Johnny Hendricks the anti-Nick Diaz? And is he the guy to take the title off GSP? You got to throw a, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? And what about Jake Ellenberger or Damian Maya? And did we just totally fucking forget about Rory McDonald last week? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? And just saying stuff. But right now, like we always do about this time, we're going to kick off the show with a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Brian Martin. Brian writes, The the bald father pours a hot bottle of haterade on Ariel and the internet splode with glee. Why they do that? 
Yeah. And why they do that. Why do they do that? You know, um, for the people who didn't see it, uh, Dana White was kind of a dick to Ariel Helwani at the very beginning of the press con- the pre-fight press conference uh, when Ariel asked a question that had to be asked about Nick Diaz no-showing the workouts the day before. Um, and then he was even more of a dick in the post-presser scrum uh, where Ariel was asking him, hey, if you can test your own guys, do your own supplemental testing for TRT, why can't you do it for all performance-enhancing drugs? Uh, and... You know, because there's always rumors about some guys being on performance-enhancing drugs. To which Dana White replied, "Well, who are they? Tell me their names. Tell me their names, and I'll go test them." Um, which, a, it would be completely inappropriate for a reporter to just say to, to the UFC president, uh, "I've heard this guy is on performance." I'm just going to speculate wildly about who's on performance-enhancing drugs. B, we don't know their names. That's why we need the testing. That's what tells us who is on performance-enhancing drugs, is the testing. That's the whole point of the question. And the, th- the thing was, people did seem to take a weird amount of like joy in Dana White being a dick to one of the sport's best reporters. Yeah, that's the thing that bothers me the most about it. And obviously, I think Ariel's an easy target just because he's the best-known MMA reporter. Uh, and so he, he catches the most flack. And like honestly catches kind of an ungodly amount of flack on the internets, so to speak. And I would say more often than not handles it with a ridiculous amount of good grace and and, Canadian. Yeah. Canadian charm whenever he catches a manifestation of the internet. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, in a larger sense, clearly Dana White knew that someone was going to come to that press conference and ask those questions about Nick Diaz, You've got right? To. Because you've absolutely got to. Like that's a, a huge and legitimate part of the story. When one of the guys who was in your main event of this pay per view, who has been removed from the main event of previous pay per views for missing pre fight uh, responsibilities, yeah. and he missed then, the first thing, the first media event of the week. So he must have known that somebody was going to come to the press conference and ask that. So I don't understand why those questions provoked that response. I also don't understand why his counter to that was to be like, hey, do you have any questions about the actual fight? Do you have any questions about the fight on Saturday night? He's here. And it's like, no, you don't get to have it both ways. You don't get to play up the angle that like uh, Nick Diaz is, you know, the bad boy won't play along kind of stuff. Uh, And then what you want suddenly everybody to confine their questions to purely fight-related stuff on Saturday night when you've been, like, uh, pushing the the other, the outside interests angle the entire way. He, and what are you supposed to ask him? I mean, how many questions can you ask about the fight? Like, hey, tell us your game plan, even though I know you're not going to. You know? How was your training camp go? Yeah, yeah. Was it the greatest training camp of your life, would you say? <laughs> Great training camp or greatest training camp. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many questions you can ask about that. So the UFC wants to kind of promote these other you know, this rivalry storyline, this stuff about GSP and Nick Diaz being in a hotel uh, and getting into it. But then when it doesn't suit them, when they don't want to deal with it, when, you know, maybe feel Dana White might have felt like it embarrassed him or something to have Nick Diaz no-show something and then he can't really crack down on him because you need him in fight week. Uh, and so then he wants to, you know, push all those questions aside. You don't get to do that. Yeah. And people on the internet, come on, just because Ariel Helwani is like the most visible uh, reporter out there, I understand, you know, he's successful, so people, you know, sometimes just people just want to be a dick about whoever's successful. But if you don't think that Ariel is one of the best reporters in this sport, then you're kidding yourself. Yeah. And the weird part is that when this happens, and it happens somewhat frequently, where some member of the MMA media gets called on the carpet by Dana White. There is this weird explosion of glee that happens. And it almost happens from other reporters, which I think is weird. Like one of the things that makes it makes it a little bit it adds this extra layer of 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 a like a feeling of nerve wracking. Like it makes it a little bit more nerve wracking when you're at these UFC uh, press things, because, you know, if you ask a hard question and you get into it with someone no one's going to have your back, dude. Like, yeah, that's true. If anything, they're going to uh, revel in your in your difficulties, you know. And and I wish it wasn't like that, but it is. And it's, and the it should be the exact opposite. If you ask a question that, especially a question about something like drug testing, if it rankles Dana White. I mean, that's what you should be doing as a reporter. That's the guy doing his job. It's when people are like pitching softballs or spending the entire uh, press conference saying, when are you going to come back to blank city? I mean, that's the bullshit. Like, it, yes. Yeah. 
But that, but again, that points out a thing we've talked about on the podcast before: why news, uh, you know, the why fight the fight, why the UFC and fight companies and every you know sports organization in the world loves stuff like press conferences because it allows them to give this impression of. Uh, openness and accessibility to all these different media outlets at once. But at the same time, if you don't like the direction of the questions, it's super easy to shut them down and or just mock the person who's asking them. Yeah. Anyway, uh, second question this week comes from Claire Hammond. She writes, what are your thoughts on the announcement of the new tough coaches of Ronda Rousey versus the winner of Misha Tate versus Kat Zingano? I'm interested and will be watching, but are they doing this at the right time? Are they hoping for a Tate victory because of previous bad blood? Well, yes. Parenthetically, yes. Uh, <laughs> is it a good way for us to learn more about Tate and Zingano and get more fighters in the division? However, Zingano didn't seem that comfortable in front of the camera from interviews I've seen. Hopefully, hopefully she'll have gotten used to it by the time it's filmed. Uh, Tate's cornering comments to Carraway, Brian Carraway, to coast in the third round of his fight could be a worry if, you, if she's your coach and in your corner on the show. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. First of all, the last time we talked about Claire Hammond on the show, I said she was from New Zealand. That turned out to be wrong. She's actually from Australia. No, they will fight you for that. I assume that's like saying that someone who went to Michigan went to Ohio. State, yeah, worse. So I apologize to her for that. Oh man, Australian, one of our loyal Australian listeners, Claire Hammond. Well, what I'm surprised at is this question did not mention the thing that seems crazy to me is not just that we're going to have a you know female coached tough, but it's they're going to have female fighters and male fighters on the same season of tough. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Just a bunch of drunk. Men and women in their 20s, everybody of equal weight. Uh, <laughs> Over under on number of pregnancies. Three? You know somebody's going to get wasted and make out on the first episode. And, and worst case scenario, I don't even want to say it, but I think we all know what it is. You know, some sort of sexual assault occurs in the, <laughs> well, you in said the tough it. house. You didn't want to say it, but you said it. Well, if you or or how about way. what if like the most promising fighter on the season, uh, has to go home because his girlfriend won't let him stay. <laughs> yeah, interesting. That's that's another interesting point. Uh, I think that like, that Claire brings up an interesting point, too, which I was thinking about yesterday, actually, which how awesome would it be if Kat Zingano beat Misha Tate and all of a sudden she was the host on the or the coach on the new uh, season of The Ultimate Fighter, going from being like a complete nobody to grabbing one of these spots that they normally reserve for one of the fighters that they really want to promote in an upcoming huge fight. I think that'd be fine. I think that they could work with Kat Zingano, to tell you the truth. I talked to Kat Zingano for a while uh, in Anaheim when I was there for the Ronda Rousey-Liz Carmouche fight. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen her in front of the camera. Maybe she does freeze up or something or get nervous because just from a lack of experience. But I talked to her for a while, and she was interesting and articulate, had a lot of good stuff to say. So, uh I think that that would be no problem. Also, I assume she would bring her husband, uh, uh, Mauricio Zingano, uh, famed jiu-jitsu ace, uh, in. Uh, also, uh, he fought on that 2003 Kalispell uh, card here in Montana oh, good. Yeah. Uh, that I sent you the picture of. Yeah, it was just uh, Zingano, Dennis Hallman, uh, Fabricio Verdum, and Montana's old Brandon Olson, just all, all scrapping in the mix there. But I think uh, that would not be... A disaster for them. Obviously, no, I Misha Tate and Ronda history. Awesome. It would be like a, a once in a lifetime opportunity for her, for sure. And you know, then you get somebody in there who comes from uh, a straight up jujitsu background uh, that maybe knows how to stay out of an armbar. Who knows? Yeah, interesting. We'll see. The last question this week comes from Manu Naoli. You gotta be kidding me with these things. I, I, know, I know that it looks. You know what your problem is? Is a lack of confidence. If you just said that with some authority. Mano Naoli. There you go. All right. I know you picked this because of that name and because this is a long question. Uh, after the main event this past weekend, GSP thanked Nick Diaz for being a great promoter. This got me thinking about the promotion of a fight and trying to pull new fans or even the casual fan. We heard in the build up to the fight about GSP's dark place and he was going to destroy Nick. Most hardcore fans understood that GSP was probably going to win the match exactly the way it played out, even though we were hoping for a beating. The casual fan or new fan may have watched the fight hoping for a beating, but got a more technical fight instead. I know it would be a sucky promotion job to say, I'm going to come out and win by wrestling and keeping control. (laughs) 
But the more a match gets sold as a grudge match or a beating, and the more it does not turn out that way, probably turns away more casual fans or new fans than it gets them to tune in again. Do you feel like the current method of promotion is a good way to draw in new fans and to keep them in the fold? You know, probably not a great idea after the fight to praise your opponent's ability to hype up the fight. No, it was really weird, and it was, and we, you know. The guys always do that after they fight. Then BJ they're, Penn. Then they're brothers. Yeah. Uh, and this was a fight where maybe you didn't expect them to do that because the animosity between them seemed so legitimate. So it was really kind of a letdown, I thought, after the fight for St. Pierre to jump on the mic and, and sort of, uh, you know, reveal that he or, or at least to say to allege, I guess, that 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 he thought Diaz was doing it all along just to sell the fight. People has no idea how well Nick Diaz promotes a fight. And really, it seemed like that's not true. And Dana White spoke to this at the post-fight press conference where he was like, believe me, I've been in the middle of this bullshit for three months. It was not fake. So it was just a very strange move by GSP. And while not, you know, totally shocking was one that that did kind of undermine the, the, the story of the fight, the pre-fight hype leading up to the fight, and seemed like it undermined it in a way that was even more disingenuous than if the hype had been prepackaged or, or well, not real. You know, it seemed related to me to the GSP's comments earlier where he was trying to put some distance between himself and the Dark Places uh, soundbite that he kind of suggested that the UFC had recorded that at a much earlier date, maybe about something else entirely, and then was repurposing it, taking it out of context, and making it sound like that was a threat toward Nick Diaz and, and trying to put it in line with the stuff about Dana White saying that GSP was going to put the worst beating on Nick Diaz. And so when you do think about it, when you look at all those promotional materials, what do we have of GSP actually saying about Nick Diaz? Where we could tell that he was talking about Nick Diaz and saying, you know, how, how bad an ass kicking he's going to put on him. Like, you didn't really get that from GSP. You only got it, like, you know, through Dana White or implied from the UFC's promotional materials. So it did seem like the UFC was maybe making promises on behalf of GSP that he was not necessarily willing to go out there and even try and fulfill. He was going to go out there and do the same GSP shit that he always does, which he's awesome at, right. and which he has a, every right to go out there and do, especially since nobody can seem to stop it. Uh, but I could see why he might be a little upset that the UFC is you know, making making it out to seem like he's going to do something that he has no intention of doing because then people are going to blame him if he doesn't do it. Maybe this comment was kind of trying to trying to bring it back around a little bit uh, and maybe he thought, because Nick Diaz is always really, uh, really nice to people right after the fight. Uh, and then he goes over and, and does the interview where he talks about GSP hitting like a girl and how he, you know, even though he's retired, he wants a rematch uh, and also thinks he matches up against better against Anderson Silva. Yeah, so. no, you do not. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, how that affects casual fans, I guess, I don't really know. Uh, I have a feeling that lots of people who tune in to mixed martial arts expecting to see blood and guts and capital V violence probably leave disappointed. But I don't know that for sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, at, the, at this point, you'd think that people who are buying a UFC pay-per-view for any reason would kind of know what they were getting. You think there are still people out there that are like, I've never watched this before, but this this Canadian guy, this French guy, and this other guy seem like they hate each other, so I'm going to drop 60 bucks to watch them <laughs> yeah. fight. Like, yeah, I don't think so. Maybe those people will go to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch it or something. I mean, I think that uh, there's always this disconnect between the number of people who talk about how much they hate seeing GSP fight and then the UFC saying that GSP is the pound-for-pound king of pay-per-view sales. Right. yeah. Well, I guess that's going to do it uh, this week for listener mail. If you have a question or comment for the co-main event podcast in the future, you can hit us up by going to the website, comaineventpodcast.com, and clicking the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, we talked a little bit about this just a moment ago in the listener mail segment, but uh, 
As it turned out in the main event of UFC 158, the lead-up to the fight, mostly thanks to Nick Diaz, was great theater, but almost nothing else. As once the fight actually gets started, got started, I think it turned out a lot like many of us expected it to, with George St. Pierre using his pretty unbelievable wrestling skills and, heck, even dominating Nick Diaz on the feet for the most part. Um, I know that you wrote about this on MMA Junkie this week, and maybe you felt it was a little bit tedious. At least that's what it said in the headline. Uh, so, you got something you want to say? Something you want to say about my headline? No, I just didn't, you know, I knew we were going to talk about it, so maybe I didn't read the whole thing exactly, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know how you do. You don't, you don't read stuff. Did you, but did you find it tedious? Did you think it was a tedious fight? Because I thought it was, I thought found it enjoyable. I thought it was a good fight. You know, by the third round, I think it was one of those where you know that you're just going to sit through two more rounds of this. And I'm, not that that's bad, necessarily. I mean, it is impressive that he's able to do it. And I didn't think Nick Diaz had a, had a terrible showing. I mean, he had a couple moments where he was able to, to get his boxing going in brief flashes, and he stopped a few takedowns. But it was pretty clear that GSP going to GSP, and he's just going to do it throughout the entire thing. He's not really making an effort to finish. Uh, I mean, you can argue whether he should, whether he owes us that. But, you know, he's he's beating the guy up. He's controlling him from the top. He's not going to sacrifice top position to try and go for a submission uh, or to even you know, try and get into a, a better position to strike. He his, his goal is to control you from the top and beat you up there. And, you know, that's a, a viable strategy. You can't say that, that that's not something that the dude's allowed to do. Uh, I think the problem is that... Uh, he needs you need at this point to find somebody else who can make him do something else because right now especially with Nick Diaz and Carlos Condit a couple of guys who can't stop him from taking them down more or less whenever he wants to it we just don't see him challenged in that way and forced to do uh you know forced to find another gear forced to find another strategy and i think that there's only so long people are going to be willing to sit through that yeah you know and and I'm probably the wrong guy to, to ask about this because when I first started watching the sport back in the olden times during the 1990s. Here we go. Some of you kids might remember. Old man Dundas. Back when we used to get them on VHS cassette tapes <laughs> from the video store. And maybe if you were poor, also rent a VCR. <laughs> uh, the first guys that really like made me a hardcore MMA fan. I always thought it was cool, but the thing that really engaged me fully was when the American wrestlers first showed up, the Dan Severns, Mark Coleman, you know, Randy Couture type guys. We know you're a wrestling fan. And boy. started kicking everybody's ass. So I really think that when you watch a guy come out and dominate his opponent for 25 minutes using a skill that he has that the other guy just can't compete with, I find that compelling. I really do. And I guess I understand why that's not everyone's cup of tea. But for me, watching GSP in this fight was really impressive because even more, I think, apparent in this fight than maybe even in some of GSP's other fights was how he had obviously scouted every facet of Nick Diaz's game. There was nothing that Nick Diaz could do that George St. Pierre wasn't 100% ready for. And to me, watching nuances of the sport like him knowing the way that Nick Diaz is going to try to roll away from his control on the ground, and, and as Joe Rogan pointed out on the show, like feeling when Diaz would try to trap his wrist like he was going to try to roll out, and, and St. Pierre had clearly figured out that all he had to do when Diaz did that was hop under the other side of his body. To me, the nuance of watching him do that is really compelling. And it's one of the reasons why I like this sport, because there's so many ways to be really good at it or really bad. It's not just about being the best athlete or being the toughest guy. Sometimes it's about being the smartest guy, Okay, that's, which is one I, of the things I really like about I, it. I agree with you there. that it, there, there is something enjoyable about watching that kind of thing. But it's like after three rounds when you've seen him thoroughly demonstrate his ability to do that. And, I mean, if this were a seven-round fight, he would have just kept doing it for seven rounds. If it were a nine-round fight, he would have just kept doing it for nine rounds. You know, there's gets Unless to a point. Unless it was a fight to, de to the death, at which point Nick Diaz totally would have won. Yeah. Right? Yeah, well, we'd, it'd still be going on, <laughs> I think. Um, but I think the, the, the thing for GSP is that 
he is able to go out there and exert his will, do exactly what he wants to do against these guys, and he's able to do it every single time to where, like, it's at least with Anderson Silva, you know, there's always some doubt. Will Anderson Silva do something brilliant that finishes the fight? Will he fuck around for five rounds? I mean, you just, you don't always know what you're going to get with Anderson Silva. So there's that element of, like, unpredictability and excitement. And GSP doesn't have that. He's not that guy. He's the guy who goes out there and does the, like, smartest, safest, most dependable thing he can do uh, and just does it all night. And so, I mean, I, I think that you're right. There is something at least, like, intellectually enjoyable about that. But I also think that people are, gonna, you know, people are not going to want to see that same exact thing. It gets less impressive the more you see it. It's like they used to say about, like, Andre the Giant where they figured out that, like, hey, even the dude who is a giant, you got to move him around. A bunch. You can't have him just wrestling in the same territory over and over again because by the fifth time you've seen a dude who's a giant, oh, it's not so awesome anymore. If you only see him once a year, then people go apeshit crazy for yeah, it. That's a good point. Do you think that part of it is is because he's so good, because he's so clearly dominant yes. and better than his opponent, that there then is this expectation, hey, this guy ought to be doing even more? Yeah. Because you're right to say that our expectations for Anderson Silva or, say, John Jones are different because when we tune into one of those fights, there's always the possibility that one of those dudes is going to do some video game shit. Yeah. And that's awesome. <laughs> and I would make the argument that GSP is awesome in a completely different way, but is part of the reason that people seem to get so pissed off about him because it seems like he could do whatever he wants. Well, think about the whole appeal of Nick Diaz in this fight. The, the thing that Nick Diaz brought with him was that hey, GSP is driven and crazy by this guy. GSP asked for this fight because he wants to kick the shit out of Nick Diaz. He wants to beat him up way worse than he wants to beat anybody else up, wants to retire this guy, you know, wants to put the worst beating on him we've ever seen. Like, he, he's taken out of this normal, reserved, uh, and emotionless headspace that he's in and into the dark place. That was the whole appeal. That was right. the whole angle that they that this fight was because otherwise the fight makes no sense for the dude who's coming off a loss to the guy that GSP just beat. It makes no sense for him to fight Nick Diaz. Otherwise, the whole thing it was an emotional appeal to fans like, hey, this is this guy is going to make Nick Diaz do some other shit. This is going to make him break out of this this mold, and then it didn't happen. Right. I think that's the the problem there is that it becomes more apparent that like oh so even when he fights the guy who could make him seemingly madder than anybody else in the world, who could be all wrapped up into one person, all these things that George St. Pierre would kind of despise in an opponent and still can't even get close to getting him to lose his composure. Yeah, and if that was uh, as manufactured as maybe we talked about it was during the listener mail segment, you have to admit that's kind of a master stroke on the part of the UFC to build that storyline Whoever is the smart person that they're paying to come up with the, the marketing strategies for each fight kind of did an awesome job on this one because I think that you're right. But part of that expectation, I think, was the idea that maybe if Nick Diaz could keep the fight on the feet, that his boxing ability would be able to test George St. Pierre in a way. And that turned out to also be not true for the most part. There's about... 30 seconds or so in the third round where Diaz was able to, I guess he would say, box him up. Box him up, Put man. his hands on him. Yeah. Uh, with, with, the, with the Stockton slap and, uh, and other features of his game. But even, in, even for the most part during the stand-up, it seemed like George St. Pierre had, had that figured out. Because at the beginning of the fight when Diaz came out and prior to just running straight into a zillion takedowns, when he was trying to get that going and work his, his boxing game, it seemed like every time he tried to throw a punch, St. Pierre would just counter it with a hook and get, then get out of the way. Or, you know, he could just throw a jab on the inside of every combination that Nick Diaz tries to get off with, and then he keeps him worried about either getting jabbed or getting taken down. Nick Diaz seemed a lot less worried about getting jabbed, but... I think that was one of the things that really inhibited Nick Diaz's boxing game is he's better when he can throw uh, combos. You know, he's not he's not a guy who excels a lot if he's just throwing one punch at a time. He has to be able to walk you back into the fence, get you to stop moving there and get you trapped there and then, you know, throw off a, 
a three or four punch combo. And it's tough to do that when you have to worry about the guy shooting him with a blast double, putting you on your back. Yeah. But, I mean, up to your point about the, the way the, the smart move for the UFC to sell right, it, right. Why, what I wonder about that is how many times can you do that? Because in this one, I think it hurts you if you sell one that way, it doesn't turn out that way, and then you got another one that actually might, you know, you have a re- reason to think that it actually might turn out that way. Uh, you can't really go back to that well too soon. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll t- probably talk about this in round three when we talk a little bit more specifically about Johnny Hendricks. But if they do put together the the George St. Pierre-Johnny Hendricks fight, which they say they're going to and are giving every indication that that's going to happen, that's a fight that I think you have to promote more purely on style. Yeah, you're not going to re- promote the rivalry on that one. You see, <laughs> they're sitting next to each other talking about how much they respect each other and everything. You know, yeah, you're not going to you're not going to go to the rivalry angle there. Here's what I wonder about St. Pierre, though. Uh, I looked, you know, and and. Typically, I have a personal rule against ever reading internet comments, as I know good rule. Yeah. you probably do as well. Uh, but the day after the fight at about, I'd say, 6 or 7 o'clock in the one true time zone, I, just, I was like, I, I wonder what the dudes on ESPN.com are saying about George St. Pierre's performance. Oh, you know, the, the price of wondering what those dudes are, are saying is finding out. Yes, and I paid it only briefly. <laughs> but I did. I looked at the, the original news story that, that Brett Okamoto had written about, the, about the, the fight, and I scrolled down to look at the comments, and the first fucking comment was, George St. Pierre couldn't submit a girl! Exclamation point. And I was just like, really? Like, that's the first comment. And so it makes me wonder. And that, that like, three of the first four comments were in that same vein. That, that, that was the That was the level of discourse yeah, we're dealing with? From this from this fight. Uh, and that makes me wonder, like, are we going to miss George St. Pierre when he's gone? I think, you know, when he fights Johnny Hendricks, I think... Hendricks is going to be a fashionable pick, I bet. I bet some people are going to be taking him to beat St. Pierre. And, and we've talked about, I think, last week about how he seems like he has the worst matchup of styles in the division for St. Pierre. But, you know, fast forward, if St. Pierre gets beaten, will we miss him and the, the kind of dependability that he's brought to the division? And are we sort of taking him for granted right now? Because what he's done is amazing. Like, the way he's dominated the division is he's amazing. He's been champ for, what, five years? Yeah, and I think just because he's put together God knows how many, like eight decisions in a row. I think like six. At this, at this point, point. Yeah. I feel like the general response to his fights is sort of negative. And, that's, and that, to me, is a little bit sad to think that we're witnessing this greatness from this guy who's dominating this division, you know, maybe – more thoroughly than anybody else ever has, including guys like Matt Hughes, who, who at the time he was doing it, seemed as dominant as a guy could ever be. Are we missing out on his greatness in some way just because we nitpick the way that he fights? Yeah, I think that he will be one of those guys where once it's all over and we look back on him, like when the UFC put together that little package looking back on Matt Hughes' career and suddenly... Matt Hughes becomes a lot better than he ever was. I think it's going to be one of those things because the the actual experience of watching him fight, it's not the holy shit, I can't believe this dude response that you get from watching Anderson Silva and John Jones, like you said. And there's not a lot of video game shit going on when you're watching GSP. But I think when people look back on this like block of time where he just totally dominated and controlled the division, uh, I think that they'll remember that. Uh, more fondly than they remember the actual experience of watching him fight. Well, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll get on to round number two. Uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? The most self-explanatory segment on the co-main event podcast. Uh, And I guess it it goes like this. This week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, goes out to the World Series of Fighting Uh for trying to pull this practical joke on us about how they're going to have Andre Arlovsky and Rumble Johnson fight in a heavyweight bout this weekend. I think that's actually true. That's actually happening. As if anyone would really do that. <laughs> Wait, you're, say- you're saying you don't think that it's, a- it's actually going to happen. That can't be real. <laughs> that can't be life. You know, that would just be too much of a terrible joke about both guys <laughs> to take a middleweight who can't make weight. So you just say fuck it, let's have him fight at heavyweight, and he'll fight against a heavyweight who keeps getting knocked out by heavyweights, so you have him fight a middleweight. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding that me? That can't be real. Come on. 
So if this fight actually does happen, I, I assume your head's just going to explode. I am going to tune in fully expecting to see Tank Abbott against Scott Ferrazzo 3. <laughs> Some sort of main event where they were like, oh, we can't possibly promote this. Let's just make up a fake fight between two le- like halfway legitimate dudes. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess we all have something to look forward to then. Um, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week goes out to UFC color commentator Joe Rogan, who uh, was discussing recently transgender female fighter Fallon Fox. Uh, and uh, in t- to simplify his position, Joe Rogan is against it. Uh, he is against allowing Fallon Fox to fight women. Uh, but during his explanation for why he's against it, he had this to say about the fairer sex. Quote, Women are built for getting held down by the stronger male monkey, and, you know, women are built for carrying babies and doing work and whatever other non-hyper-explosive physical things you'd want to do with your body. <sighs> you fucking kidding me? Held down by the stronger male monkey? You fucking kidding me? <laughs> wow. Uh, all right, well, I guess that's going to do it for uh, round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Unanimous decision loss to George St. Pierre. Nick Diaz said A, that he doesn't think he has it in him anymore and wants to retire. B, that he wants a rematch with George St. Pierre. C, that he thinks he matches up better than George St. Pierre with Anderson Silva. D, that he hasn't paid taxes in his entire life and is probably going to jail. What the hell, man? All, can I answer all of the above? Yeah, please. All of the above? No, I mean, I, I wrote a thing on ESPN.com this week about. Nick Diaz's retirement because I saw a lot of things floating around on the internet about how seriously we should take it and whether or not we, we should take him at his word about his retirement, et cetera, et cetera. He just retired and last time. No, I know. Yeah. He, in fact, used almost exactly the yes. same words to retire after he was defeated by Carlos Condit. Uh, and to that, I just had to say, yeah, we should believe Nick Diaz. Nick Diaz is telling us the truth as he sees it at the exact moment that the words are coming out of his lips at the exact moment that he says, says those, those words, Nick Diaz honestly believes that he's going to retire. Now, 30 minutes later, when he wanders into the, the post fight press conference already after Dana White had said he wasn't going to be there, which if you're Diaz, come on, that's the only way you're coming to the press conference is <laughs> after Dana says you're not going to be there. And already, even by then, the truth, according to Nick Diaz, had begun to change. Now it's suddenly, yeah, I'm trying to get out of this, but at the same time, I really want a rematch. And also, I will continue to just repeat this pie-in-the-sky idea that someday I'll be able to fight Anderson Silva because, well, fuck, man, it worked for getting me a fight against George St. Pierre. Maybe I should just try that again. Yeah. Well, you know, the Jake Shields actually said the same thing that you said. That And I asked Jake, like, hey, when he retired after the Carlos Condit fight, did you believe him? And he was like, I believed that he meant it at the time. Yeah. Uh, but Well, retiring in the cage is like waking up with a terrible hangover and yeah. being like, oh, oh, I'll never drink never. again. Oh, that's it for that, me, man. I'm turning over a new leaf. It, I'm going to church. <laughs> it's, it seems like the only option at the time that you say it. You know, two weeks later. Yeah. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. In other words, uh, the thing with Nick Diaz is he does this in so many different ways, like where he will say something and then immediately turn around and say something that contradicts what he just said. Like when he sat at the post-fight press conference and said, I don't want to make any excuses and then reeled off like six or seven excuses, among which was that the time change between California and Montreal just completely fucked him up to the point where wow. there's no way he could perform. Man, it's not like going to Tokyo. It's a three hour time difference. You can you can do the math wrong on that. You cannot ever understand the time difference and still be OK. Like it's like if you fought at midnight in Montreal and we're like, oh, man, but my body thought it was 9 p.m. So obviously I was completely fucked up. There's no way I could perform that way. But, you know, he'll do that kind of stuff all the time. It's like, and this is another part of my theory that Nick Diaz just is the living embodiment of the id. 
Uh, one of the things uh, Freud said about the id is that's where conflicting desires live without canceling each other out. Nick Diaz can want to- two totally different things. He can want to retire and also to fight George St. Pierre again right now. You know, he can say, turn to Johnny Hendricks and say, no, no disrespect, but I don't think you won that fight against Carlos Condit, um, which Nick Diaz would take so much offense to if somebody said it to him uh, and would never consider that to be not a disrespectful thing. He can say how, you know, he doesn't believe that anybody deserves to get beaten down, but then he wants to go in there and beat GSP. You know, he can say all this kind of stuff. So you can't even try and apply the normal rules to Nick Diaz stuff. Wow, that you know, I feel like that theory has legs, actually. Yeah. No. Uh, the thing that that struck me as a, one of the more amazing things that he said after this fight was that it seemed like no one was safe because for a minute there in the cage, it's like he had to stop himself from alleging a conspiracy inside his own camp, like someone was ratting him out to George Saint Pierre about what techniques he was going to use in the cage. When he kept saying, "I don't know," I thought that was pretty funny the way he. He knew whatever I was going to do before I did it. Well, he also was saying in the press conference that, you know, no one wanted to help him out for this fight. People weren't helping him train. He got a couple of good training days in, but nobody was helping him out. And, you know, he hasn't paid taxes ever and is probably going to jail. Let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> we just gloss right, over this. Right. Well, and Nick Diaz encountered so many situations during this week. And keep in mind, this is a dude that the only thing we've heard about him previous to this is how much he fucking despises talking to the media. This guy encountered so many situations where he should have just said no comment (laughs) or where he didn't have to disclose some information to us. And yet he seemed overly willing, like no one asked him about his taxes, dude. He just (laughs) offered that up to to us. And I hope to God it's not true because that. You know, I do think Dana White was right that if it turns out that's the case, and I guess Caesar Gracie denied it today on, on Ariel's show, but, man, that would be sad yeah, if it turned out that w- Nick Diaz was going to go to jail. Well, and you got to think, Caesar Gracie had better deny that, because if that turns out to be true, if, imagine if Nick Diaz goes to jail for tax evasion. First of all, if you're going to pull off a tax evasion scam, rule number one is don't tell people that you are not paying taxes. Do not go to a press conference <laughs> and announce it. Uh, totally unwarranted or un, unasked. I hope Caesar Gracie, among the other people who are you know associate, business associates in one way or another of Nick Diaz, realized that if Nick Diaz went to jail behind some tax evasion bullshit, we're not going to blame Nick Diaz. Oh no, no, we're blaming Caesar Gracie for that one. That's the one where we're like, hey, Caesar, we know, we all know Nick is not going to sit down there with his his tax returns. QuickBooks. He's not going to yeah. fire up QuickBooks on S- his laptop, sitting around with his ten ninety nine, and you know. Look, looking at his investments and how much interest he made off of, off of selling stocks and bonds. <laughs> I think he probably can't claim Nate as a defendant. Uh, but, you know, we don't expect Nick to be doing all that. That's what Caesar Gracie is for. That's what the, the, he has. Those people around who are no doubt taking a cut of his paychecks when they roll in. Uh, those people got to be helping him out with some tax shit. God damn, we can't have Nick Diaz going to jail for tax evasion. No, Make he sure should he be going to jail taxes. for totally re- other stuff. Exactly. Unrelated to taxes. Nick Diaz, you know, while I think Nick Diaz is one of the fighters that is definitely tough enough to be able to handle himself in prison, that dude is not going to be able to get by in, in a place where he can't smoke weed and go on a 100-mile bike ride. You can't, Nick Diaz can't handle prison. Yeah. He needs to be out there in the world doing stuff, man. <laughs> can't, he's not going to be able to get his, his food in there. He's not going to be able to... To, to eat his vegetarian diet or whatever. He's going to want some brown rice and to be able to go on a jog, and he's not going to be able to do it, and he's going to totally flip out. Imagine the, the paranoid conspiracy theories he'd come up with in prison. And that'd be true. Well, let's talk about a, a, a different offshoot of this, and that is that at one point this week, I felt like I reached a mental turning point on our treatment of Nick Diaz. because, And certainly the co-main event podcast has been as complicit as anyone else in reveling in Nick Diaz's more hilarious moments. But at some point this week, I had to face the idea of, man, is it okay to laugh at Nick Diaz? No, because I, I totally, I see where you're going here and I totally agree. With you. I, I feel like most professional fighters as, as uh, Walter Fox might say are begging for it when it comes <laughs> to you making fun of them because they do and say 
totally fucking ridiculous shit constantly in the media, in public, on Twitter, etc., etc. And I think that that's fair game. Nick Diaz is a guy who... He seems as if there may well be some kind of undiagnosed disorder going on. And so the one time in the guy's goddamn life where he correctly uses a well-known idiom of the English language this week when he says that the UFC is selling people wolf tickets, and then for the rest of the week, people make fun of it on Twitter. I had to be like, is this okay? Is it okay to make fun of this guy who probably has some kind of issue? I thought you were going to talk about... You actually knew... You you know the wolf tickets phrase. You were familiar with that yeah, phrase. I, I, yes, very familiar I with it. I never heard I, it before in my it life. It blew my mind that, that anyone would make an issue of that. I never... After watching him say that, I never would have even gone back to it in my mind ever. To me, it was like if Nick Diaz had gone to the press conference and been like, oh man, thank God it's Friday, you guys. And the entire <laughs> MMA media would have been like, ha ha ha! Oh, did you hear what he said? Thank God it's Friday. Oh, man, that's amazing. Hashtag thank God it's Friday. Like, <laughs> it's an expression that people use. I've never heard it. I'm I've, 33 years old. I, I, You know, I've been around a little bit. I've never heard it before in my life. I find that just hard to believe. I was wondering the same thing, though, when he was at the press conference and he was saying, you know, some of the ridiculous shit, saying how he never paid taxes and he's probably going to jail or saying, you know, Saying to Johnny Hendricks, like, I don't think you won that fight, and I think I match up better with Anderson Silva, and all this stuff, and there's all these kind of like nervous, awkward laughter, and he, you get the sense that he doesn't have any idea why people would be laughing at. No, any of this it stuff. happened at that UFC 137 press conference after he beat BJ Penn. Where yes, that's he right. He was going on and on about what a terrible neighborhood he lived in, and he might have said something like somebody stole his bike or something like that, and people were laughing, and he was talking about how there's so much crime in his neighborhood. And then that one, I think he said several times that this isn't funny. Yeah, you could see him getting mad, and like people, and it's, it's, people don't know how to respond to him, because yeah. he does bust out so many like non-sequiturs and, and say stuff that does, in fact, seem ridiculous and, frankly, hilarious. But like you could kind of see it on his face, where he was like encountering this moment against society where like he was sitting on this stage and everybody was laughing at him but he was like trying to make a serious point yeah you can understand how a guy like that would then come away with the belief or the theory that you know everyone and everything is against him that society is just completely fucked up like everybody else is crazy and he's the only sane one around i could see why he might come out of that with that. But I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying there that it was kind of, at some point it goes from just like, you know, when Chael Sonnen is doing it, you know that he is trying to get that reaction out right. of you. Yeah, absolutely. And when Nick Diaz is doing it, there is some part where you wonder if we, we shouldn't be maybe a little more concerned than we are, especially about the tax evasion prison stuff. Well, yeah. So at this point, Nick Diaz comes out and announces his retirement. He, as of Monday, when we're re- recording this, he's probably the only person in the world that believes it. That I don't know if he still believes retired. it today. But is it the? Would it be the best thing for him? It, you know, assuming he doesn't need the money. If he needs the money, guarantee we see him again in the UFC octagon. But he talked so much this week about not really enjoying it and not really. Uh, you know, having having his mind right and talked about how hard it is to be a professional fighter as as a career, which is all stuff where, man, he's right. Yeah, you know? totally. Uh, so should he stay on? Like, does he should he continue to fight or should he, you know, open the scariest bike shop in Northern California <laughs> where you can go in and get your 10 speed tuned up or maybe get slapped? <laughs> well, here's the question I have for it. It's not a matter of. Uh, does the fact that he complains about the life of a mixed martial artist make you think that he should give it up? It's that, is he the kind of guy where no matter what he's doing, he's going to find a way to find the negatives in it and to complain about it? Like Caesar Gracie was saying, that he'll find it, take a perfect situation and find a way to make it imperfect. And I think that, that there is a lot to that theory about Nick Diaz, about the kind of person he is, that in some way he enjoys hating it. You know, he... He can't, you can't, you can't see that guy, you know, opening his bike shop and just being, going, happy to go to work every day, just a big, waking up in the morning, clapping his hands with a big smile on his face and ready to go out there and tackle the day. Like, no, he has to kind of feel like everything is bullshit and everything sucks, but he's going to push through this bullshit anyway. Oh, and, you know, 
that seems like the way he wants his life, whether he consciously realizes it or not. Yeah, that's probably a good point and one that makes me feel even more depressed than when we started this conversation. About. Let's just keep him out of prison and I think everything will be okay. <laughs> all right. I think that is at least something we can all agree on. Uh, well, that's probably going to do it for our discussion in round number two. Uh, we will be right back with round number three. Ben, at this point, I don't know how anyone could not just love the ever-loving shit out of Johnny Hendrix because, man, he's awesome with the beard and the uh, happy-go-lucky southern attitude and the then I'm going to go out and try to absolutely fucking murder you in the cage. <laughs> uh, I think, as we said earlier in the podcast, he's probably going to be a fairly fashionable pick to beat George St. Pierre when they fight, hopefully later this year. Do you think he's the guy? You know, I think he is the guy who has the best chance, at least, of the last three or four guys. Uh, the combination of uh, his wrestling ability and his knockout power. You know, George St. Pierre relies on the ability to put guys on their backs, and we know that he can be shaken up with a good shot on the feet. So those two things give Johnny Hendricks a pretty good chance. Uh, but at the same time, the other thing we know about George St. Pierre, like you said earlier, is that He's really good at looking at you, looking at what you do well, and finding a way to neutralize it. So, you know, if there's anybody who can figure out how to stop Johnny Hendricks's particular attack, uh, it might be GSP. Yeah, and Hendricks had, I think, a unanimously pretty awesome fight against Carlos Condit. I oh, think yeah. everybody liked it. It was, it was an awesome fight. At the same time, though, it felt to me at least like one of those fights where it appeared as though Carlos Condit was obviously the better rounded and maybe more talented fighter, but that Johnny Hendricks was just super strong and a great wrestler and ended up coming out on top uh, in, in terms of how we score a fight in mixed martial arts. Well, I also think, though, that uh, Hendricks said he hurt his left hand, you know, oh, his, right. his main yeah, weapon, he broke early on. So I think that that affected uh, the way he had to go after Carlos Condit because in that first round, uh, his, you know, he got that kind of Joe Frazier bobbing in close style. Like he just has no concern about you hitting him in the face or about you being able to hurt him that way. He just wants to get close enough to land that left hand. Uh, and, you know, he was doing that and being really successful, just super aggressive against Carlos Condit. And then later when he wasn't able to rely on the left hand so much, then he had to be able to, to put Carlos down, which he was able to do pretty much whenever he wanted to. Yeah. Which was impressive. Uh, but it did the the end result, and maybe it was just because of the broken hand. But the the end result made me a, made me a little less confident in his ability to beat George St. Pierre. Uh, I mean, I guess it would have it would have been hard for him to coming out come out of this fight looking any better than you know knocking fools out in nine seconds or whatever that shit he did last time. <laughs> uh, but he does he if I if I'm gonna make a, a dissenting argument. He does seem like he could be reduced to being a little bit one dimensional on the, you know, uh, if he if he's I think if he's able to put his hands on George St. Pierre early, he can certainly knock him out. But if it turns out that George St. Pierre is able to get some takedowns or, uh, you know, stay off the bottom, I think, against Johnny Hendricks, it does feel like maybe Hendricks is a guy who could be worn down into being a little bit one dimensional, which is the only thing I would say in terms of tempering our enthusiasm as to him being the guy to, to dethrone George St. Pierre, even though I know we're all hungry for that Johnny Hendricks, Chris Weidman super fight that we're <laughs> going to get by the end of the year. You know, the, to me, the excitement that comes with the Johnny Hendricks GSP fight is not necessarily that I think Johnny Hendricks is the guy, man. Johnny Hendricks is the guy who's going to go out there and beat GSP. I don't know that he will beat GSP, but I do think that he will get us the opportunity to see something else out of GSP. I don't think you're just going to be able to go out there and double leg that guy for five rounds and stay on top of him and, and elbow him in the face. I also don't think you're just going to be able to stand across from him and jab him. I think you're going to have to find something else to do against him. And that's what really interests me about it is that here's a guy who uh, presents enough danger to GSP and has enough uh, of, a, of a wrestling background and a, and a fence there uh, to be able to make things difficult on him. And let's see what else GSP has. Yeah, I agree with you. Just on paper, it does seem like if anybody's going to be able to do it, 
Johnny Hendricks with the strong uh, wrestling base, the sheer physical strength and the knockout power is probably the most uh, dangerous opponent George St. Pierre could have in the, the welterweight landscape as we see it now. What about Jake Ellenberger, though? Are we buying it from him? Like he's a guy who who packs around the same kind of power that that Johnny Hendricks has in his hands. And clearly we saw that this past weekend when he knocked Nate Marquardt out so bad that Nate Marquardt apparently didn't even remember getting knocked out. Wake uh, up 20 seconds later and argue the stoppage. Yeah. Uh, we, we've seen, though, from Ellenberger that his Achilles heel at times can be his conditioning. And it's it's I don't know if it's really his conditioning, but it seems like he just goes so hard all the time that he has a tendency to wear down. Um, I would put it pretty close neck and neck between Hendricks and Ellenberger, between the two guys that I think could be the most stylistic uh, problems for George St. Pierre. But the the. The conditioning and and his his uh, tendency to slow down bothers me a little bit about Ellenberger. Is, well, is that sort of how you feel, or, or do you feel like he is also very dangerous at this point? I, you know, I don't worry too much about the guy's conditioning. I think that, uh, you know, from what we've seen of him lately, he, he, he's going to bring it when he gets in there now. But I think one of the things we don't realize about Ellenberger, like if you take away that, that loss to, to Martin Kampman, uh, which he was winning. You know, one or two things go differently for him there, and maybe he wins that fight. You take away that one, and what does he have, like a like an eight or nine fight win streak? With the last loss coming as like a split decision to Carlos Condit in a yeah, fight that which was, really was close? another fight that Ellenberger was winning and, until the end. Carlos kind of made a big comeback. And, and, and that, still could have gone either way. Yeah. But, and, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways he's kind of flown under the radar. Uh, and there are a bunch of welterweights like that, though. I mean, you look at... Uh, Rick Story, who was on this card, nobody's really talking about Rick Story because of all the other welterweight stuff that's going on. Rick Story is win over Johnny Hendricks. Yeah. You know? Yes. He and he, you know, he lost that fight to Demian Maya. That's going to knock him back a little bit. You know, he, he has fallen off a little bit lately. Yeah, and he didn't seems, he have a stinker against Martin Kampman that, that was that story? He didn't he lose that too? Oh yeah, I mean he lost he lost the decision to Martin Kampman. He lost that decision to uh, Charlie Brenneman. Oh, right, that was a little right. bit of a surprise, uh, and he got you know the blood cranked out of his face by Demian Maya. Uh, but you look at that guy's record though. I mean he's got wins over Johnny Hendricks, got wins over Tiago Alves. You know he, he's a tough dude. And the welterweight division at this point though has so many of those guys around there that. It's tough, really tough to stand out if you're a guy like Jake Ellenberger, too, because, you know, we can only think about who's next for GSP. You know, it's hard for people to think too much further past that. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, I I think uh, to get back to talking about Johnny Hendricks here, one of the things that is really interesting to me about it is the guy who has been kind of standing around there in that number one contender zone for a while. Uh, and finally getting the chance. I think, if anything, it benefits him now that you know he, he was knocking dudes out. Everybody was saying, hey, Johnny Hendricks deserves this. Johnny Hendricks has earned it. Uh, and he kept taking fights. You know, goes out there and beats Carlos Condit in a fight of the night performance. Only further solidifies his position there. I mean, that could have gone a, long, a lot of different ways. A lot of different ways that would have been wrong for Johnny Hendricks. Uh, but now that it felt like he was somehow wronged by Diaz getting that shot, now it, it makes it more interesting to see him like, hey, maybe uh, this shit does really eventually pay off. Maybe the, the arc of UFC matchmaking is long and bends toward justice. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's gotten to the point where they just couldn't really deny the guy anymore. We talked about last week on the podcast how even prior to beating Carlos Condit, it seemed like Johnny Hendricks was just kind of ridiculously overqualified to be the number one contender to the welterweight title. And then, like you said, you go out and you have an awesome brawl with Carlos Conda and you come out on top. I mean, if they weren't going to give it to him this time, he should probably, you know, open up a pizza joint with Nick Diaz in Cleveland. <laughs> and then be like, look, Nick, man, we need, we need to talk about our tax situation. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> My Johnny Hendricks is not as good as yours. Well, I've... Definitely been working on it. It's not true. I've not worked on it at all. Um, Nick, I've been, I'm looking at the financial statement, man, and it, it looks like you're spending money on a bunch of bunch of crazy shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, we just as you said about how it's hard for Jake Ellenberger to stand out in the crowded welterweight division, which you know, arguably more competitive now than it's ever been. Uh, did we see another instance where a dude? just gets fucked by an injury situation this weekend where Rory McDonald 
uh, had to pull out, injured again. As of Monday, it seems like he's the welterweight division's forgotten man. Like nobody even remembers that Rory McDonald is is a top five guy or a top ten guy, depending on where you have him. Well, and it doesn't help that it happened with this card with so many good welterweights on it. Because like we said, you know, you got Rick Story goes out there, gets a stoppage. Uh, Jordan Mine comes over from Strike Force and becomes the first guy to, to finish Dan Miller. Uh, by the way, if you want to take a look at uh, a situation where you know you you get within one good crank of an armbar between saving your job and making twice as much money, that was one because Dan Miller. I would not be surprised if Dan Miller gets cut after that loss and had him, man. I mean, had him if he could have just. Uh, Jordan Mine was saying afterwards he didn't control his thumb, didn't stop him from being able to to turn his hand there and get that roll out of that armbar. If he does that. You know, maybe he saves his job, uh, doesn't do it, ends up getting getting knocked out and probably released from the UFC. That just shows you how quickly that shit can turn for you in this business. But if, if you're Rory McDonald and all this stuff happens, when you, it just shows like if you don't fight, if you have to sit out, there's so many opportunities for guys to jump ahead of you because our attention spans are so short in this sport that we always just remember what we saw last, just like we're MMA judges. You get, a, you get a takedown in the last 30 seconds. Boom, that's your round. You know, we're kind of the same way with that. You know, hey, and now we're, we're all talking about Jordan Mine now, man. Roy McDonald, I vaguely remember who that guy is. Creepy or something, right? <laughs> all right, well, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll wrap up for this week. Just Saying Stuff is the part of the show where Ben and I both make statements that we are then not asked to back up or follow up or defend in any way because we are, in fact, two guys just saying stuff. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff for this week? Well, I'm just saying, uh, as people who read my uh, reflections piece on Monday uh, about UFC 158 will note, there was What's a... What's that called again? My Through the Past Darkly? Yeah. I feel like if only we could find like a less snappy, uh, less slick name for that that would just stick in people's heads a little bit less. Well, I'll let you work on it and you All can, right, you can I'll, send me some I'll brainstorm notes. some ideas. Uh, anyway, uh, as readers of that column will know... Uh, there was a, a bit of a backstage confrontation between uh, Mike Ricci and Nate Diaz. Uh, apparently, I did not actually see this, but I talked to a couple different people about it and talked to Mar- Mike Ricci about it. Apparently, Nate Diaz saw Mike Ricci with his, his gi and his samurai sword walkout props uh, when he was carrying them backstage after the fight and had some choice words for him, uh, possibly suggesting that he was uh, a weak-ass ninja, bro, or something along those lines. Anyway, when I asked Mike Ricci about it, uh, he seemed pretty much as uh, confused as the rest of us would be if we were walking down the street and one of the Diaz brothers just started yelling at us. His quote, I have nothing against the Diaz brothers. I'm actually a huge fan of the Diaz brothers. I love watching them fight. But if he doesn't like me too much, that's his business. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I'm just saying that is A, probably the best way you can handle it if you're Mike Ricci, and B, Probably the most Canadian way you can handle it. Just saying. Just saying. Well, this week, I'm just saying that when all of this Nick Diaz tax stuff started to come to the surface, even though Caesar Gracie went on Ariel's show today to, den- to deny and-, and to say that, if anything, Nick has paid more in taxes than he probably owed. Not true. Which is the first no way clue that maybe we shouldn't believe that. Uh, I started thinking to myself, man, I wonder how much Nick Diaz could possibly owe in taxes. So... I went back and added up how he's how much he's made just since the start of 2011, so in the last couple of years. And in his two previous UFC fights against Carlos Condit and BJ Penn, uh, Nick Diaz has earned a flat fee of $200,000 with no win bonus. So if you assume that he's still on that contract and he's going to make a flat fee of $200,000 for fighting St. Pierre, not including any points that he makes on the pay-per-view, and then you consider that against BJ Penn, he made seventy-five grand for fight of the night, and his fight before that against Paul Daly in Strike Force, he made one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, and his fight before that against the male cyborg Santos, he made one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That adds up since the beginning of two thousand eleven to a cool one million dollars. One million dollars. One million dollars. And if you assume that Nick, Nick Diaz is paid as an independent contractor, so probably a very conservative estimate of his tax rate would be 30%. What if he has an S-Corp set up? I think we can assume that Nick Diaz probably didn't fill out the paperwork to register himself as an LLC <laughs> okay. here. Uh, 
if you assume that he's paying between 30 and 50%, uh, you know, just because we're throwing around such big numbers, Nick Diaz may owe somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 to half a million dollars in taxes just for the last three years. Not even, and the guy's been fighting since 2001. And says he's never paid it in his entire life. Might still owe back taxes for his 2002 win over Chris Lytle. So I'm saying, God, I hope Caesar Gracie was telling the truth. <laughs> I'm just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about something on the co-main event podcast. It'll be kind of a, uh, a slow weekend this week without a, a UFC show. So maybe, who knows, maybe we do an all questions answered episode. Maybe we will. Stay tuned for that. We'll let you know on the Twitter or the website or, or, or whatever. As for right now. That's the show. We're done. We're through. We're out. You're just a weak ass ninja, bro. <laughs> you know, speaking speaking of the uh, the male cyborg Santos. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the female cyborg Santos thinks of her as a person who is made to get held down by the stronger male monkey? Because I don't think that she does. Stop. Stop.